0: Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for breakfast. So we are here to talk about the public library reimagined, which I think is a really apt description because libraries all over the country and indeed the world are in the midst of a a pretty remarkable transformation. Uh, Gone are the days when libraries can afford to be mere repositories of things or even just of information. Um, so my name is Summer Mathis. Um, I'm, I'm at, we've actually recently rebranded the Atlantic Cities, and the, the, I, so I'm now editor of CityLab.com. Uh, but it, that is the Atlantic sister site dedicated to uh, the most pressing issues facing today's cities and neighborhoods. So joining me today to help uh, to help us all understand exactly how and why public land, what public libraries are transforming. Um, Immediately next to me is Brian Bannon, who was the commissioner of the Chicago Public Library. Uh, Before moving to Chicago, Brian was the chief information officer for the San Francisco Public Library, uh, where he managed digital strategy, information, uh, public media, and online services. Um, Next, we have Tessie Guillermo, who is president and CEO of Zero Divide, an organization that aims to help communities bridge the digital divide and transform themselves through technology. And finally, we have uh, John Palfrey, uh, president of the board of directors of the Digital Public Library of America, uh, a trustee at the Knight Foundation, and when he's not busy researching and teaching on new media and learning, he serves as head of school at Phillips Academy Andover. So uh, please uh, join me in welcoming our panel, and uh, and thank you for coming. So we all all know that we're living in an age when consumers can download entire collections of books and periodicals uh, in seconds. And yet, um, a few months ago, the the Pew Research Center found uh, that more than two-thirds of Americans um, say that they are engaged with their public libraries. Um, Earlier this month, the Institute for Museum and Library Services found that attendance at library programs are, have increased more than 30% nationwide since 2004. Uh, so it's maybe not the most intuitive uh, time as we're moving fast into the digital age and, and really solidifying what all that means. People are using libraries more than ever. Um, so what's going on here? Uh, are libraries shifting permanently away from being collections of books and, and toward more something more like a community center? Uh, Brian, what's happening in Chicago?
1: Well, I think that uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad you started with that question, and, and there's uh, there's something wonderful about libraries in that books um, are associated with libraries in such a strong and positive way. Um, it's also one of the great liabilities, particularly our public libraries, because our missions are so much um, bigger than a format and, and, a, and books. As much as we all love them, are our, our format for sharing and distributing knowledge, um, and 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 actually, I think that that libraries, our core mission hasn't changed. And in fact, the way that we've been behaving as anchor institutions, um, centers of learning, um, has been pretty consistent. Um, And Chicago Public Library is 140 years old. And, um, and we've, we've been sort of performing against that mission in pretty uh, interesting and radical ways over that 140-year period. So in some ways, if we really look at history, libraries, in my view, um, are one of the great sort of innovation stories that we don't talk about. That um, it, it, How many institutions do we know today that are 140 years old that are experiencing record-breaking use? And that, that record-breaking use is, is, is uh, consistent over time. So we've seen this, this big upswing. Hmm. So there's something that libraries um, are doing right, but they've known how to do it for a long time. And I, so I think what we're doing in Chicago um, is just continuing to I- expand and advance um, our mission. We're just doing it a different way. So I'll give you a few examples later.
0: OK, great. And, and Tessie, uh, in your work with your, your clients and, and library clients, um, what, what are you seeing? So um, I was fortunate to be one of the
2: participants on the Aspen Dialogue uh, last year on the um, public libraries. And um, the themes that sort of emerged from that dialogue really relate very much to what I um, uh, uh, sort of encounter in the work that we do with with communities, particularly underserved communities. Uh, And um, those are the themes of people, place, and platform. And so to the extent that uh, the mission of libraries hasn't changed, uh, the ability to sort of rally around these themes of people, not just the librarians but the patrons that come, uh, place the rooting of libraries in community in place really sort of as an anchor institution that has access to and provides access to all of the other sort of essential services uh, and activities that are going on in place and then platform and I think that's probably one of the things that's more emergent uh, in the notion of (coughs) of libraries Uh, platform where now as a central uh, entity both uh, physically and virtually You're gathering up sort of a network um, of uh, people uh, in different places, doing different things that now have a common platform uh, from a virtual standpoint, but also from a physical standpoint they can come together uh, and do lots of different things, uh, really sort of do this innovation work, but also just do basic uh, community building, uh, basic uh, learning together. Uh, And that, I think, really allows for the library to become very agile and flexible and uh, continue its growth and its uh, value.
0: John?
3: I agree totally with Brian's historical take and I totally agree with Tessie's theoretical take. I have to say I'm not quite as sanguine though maybe as those responses would Um, suggest. I happen to believe that libraries are more important in a digital age than they were prior. I think actually the importance of libraries continues to grow. The importance of public libraries continues to grow for reasons that we can talk about. Um, But I actually worry that if what we do is rely on what Brian is describing, this sort of sense of nostalgia for the books and the must and all of that. I actually think that the support for public libraries could erode, and I think actually if they turn into community centers, that would be a bad thing. Hmm. Um, so I, I, think, I think there's work to be done in this reframing, and I think there's really urgent and important things that we can and should do.
0: Why would you think it would be a bad thing for them to become community centers?
3: But I think if you, if you imagine what a community center just in the strict sense would be, which is considered kind of an open space with some people who help do programming, that could mean anything to a community. I think public libraries mean something very specific to communities that is grounded in ideas. It's grounded in knowledge. It's grounded in job creation. It's grounded in what kids need after school. It's grounded in what an immigrant might need to find their way into a new country. I think there are a bounded and important series of things that happen. I also think it's tied. To the cultural and historical record of the place. Um, and I think if it ended up just being sort of anodyne community centers, you would have A, no librarians, right? That sort of implies <laughs> that it's not professionals who are guiding this process. And B, I think it wouldn't actually be as specific and as focused toward these things that in a democracy we need libraries to do.
0: Hmm. Brian, do you think that that conflicts with you, what your idea is of what the job of a librarian is?
1: No. I mean, actually, I, I would agree with John that. That when I think of libraries as a community center, a community space, and I'm actually that's interesting. I haven't heard someone have that that such a strong. uh, Good. I'm trying to be (laughs) contrarian. Breakfast. No, it's great because I I I think that um, you know when when I think about a library as a community space, I think about it in in the ways that you just described. in in Chicago, we're the the largest provider of free homework help in the city. We're the largest um, uh, provider of open and free access to technology uh, in the city. Obviously, we, we lend books, and, and there's so many other things that we're doing related to uh, supporting new Americans, um, supporting jobs, um, and, and helping the economy of the city. But we do it through the lens of library, and we do it through the lens of our mission. And, and it starts with um, this idea that everyone, regardless of who they are or their background, should have free and open access to the leading ideas of the day. And, um, and I think that's where we start with libraries. And then we begin to think about, where is our community today? And how do we perform against that, that broad aspirational goal? In some, in some cases, we're looking at how we support learning in very specific ways, how we support the economy and jobs um, and finding jobs and building business in a specific way. And then others, um, how we make a community stronger through performing democracy. But, it's, um, but you're right. It isn't sort of a conventional term. The, the word community center might conjure a very different idea in someone's mind if they don't truly understand the core mission of a library.
2: You know, here, Here's an example, you know, uh, concrete of library as, I don't know if you, as community center, but really more as central, right, to um, an emerging uh, uh, set of issues or emerging knowledge base that needs to be shared across the community. So um, our, my organization has been working with, um, uh, uh, a web junction uh, as a uh, content pusher to, uh, to libraries around uh, the, the uh, enrollment of um, people in the Affordable Care Act. Uh-huh. And so to the extent that you have people who are now eligible um, to, um, to become part of the healthcare delivery system as a consumer, uh, but who have never done so before, right? They need, first, they need to enroll many don't have computers in their home and so they're going to the library to, the, to do the enrollment. Uh, they don't know, they don't have insurance literacy, so they don't know what it means to sign up for insurance, that um, it's not just a matter of, you know, signing up, that you actually have to provide a lot of information and the kind of information that you have to provide determines the kind of, in many ways, the coverage that you're going to get. Once you actually enroll, uh, and you choose your, your plan and you get to see the doctor, you find out you might have diabetes or, or um, some other health problem, coming back to the library to, get, to have that information curated for you right, with the librarian who is a professional at helping you learn that and then to understand where in the community might you go to sign up for a class uh, to improve your health condition. So that's more than a community center. Uh, But it does still reflect what um, the library very specifically uh, can do, and as both a, a historical service, but maybe new content and new ways of doing it.
3: Maybe one way to reframe it would be to say libraries should be the center of communities but not be community centers in okay. the sense of, you know, of, of what we yeah. imagine
0: that, that would be. I think that's fascinating actually this because the, uh, the Affordable Care Act is a really good example of something that's incredibly complicated that people really had a hard time navigating. I, but I wouldn't necessarily have thought of a librarian as the, the right person to help navigate the exchanges uh, for, for someone who's trying. You know. They, they, they were trying to have the people out in the community who really understood health insurance. And I wouldn't necessarily have guessed a librarian would be a, a good place to start. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about what specific kinds of programming we're really talking about. We're talking about a rise in, in attendance at, at programming at libraries. Um, but what kinds of services and programming are libraries providing now that they didn't before or that are becoming more popular that they did provide before? Um, and why why are libraries the right place to host those kinds of, of
1: community services? Well, I, th- I mean, I actually think that um, our more traditional uh, programs are also on the right. So like our, our book discussion groups, um, author events, I mean, people are reading um, more today than, um, in different points in our history, and they're reading in lots of different uh, formats. And I think the library has been a great convener of, of those conversations. And so we actually see more demand um, than, than we've seen, you know, previously in sort of traditional. But on the other side, we're, you know, as as the um, the world of information changes, we found that um, uh, sometimes an author talk or that format isn't isn't the most um, effective way of sharing ideas. Um, and we've started to experiment with different, you know, facilitating. Um, learning through experience, and uh, one example is we did it was a short-term project in Chicago where we um, we wanted to explore the questions around advanced manufacturing as it relates to the, the city uh, wanting to sort of rethink about you think about uh, being a leader in, in manufacturing. So we opened a, a lab where you can three um, D print, um, explore, see uh, various different pieces of advanced manufacturing. And what we were surprised by is the, there there's a big community that immediately sort of showed up at the library that had been using us before. Um, And it was a really effective way of exposing people to those those technologies that are very hard to describe in any other way other than doing. And so increasingly, we're looking at ways in the library of how we can um, expose people to leading ideas through experience uh, and programs like that, as opposed to just more traditional ways of, of exposing people through print. So may I ask a question to my Please. fellow panelists? Yeah. Brian, I saw your
3: awesome innovation lab, which I assume is that one <coughs> up by the main entrance where it looked like it had 3D printers and so forth in it. Um, would you imagine that you'll have 3D printers in there perpetually, or is the idea that you will always have what is the new edge of some form of innovation in there?
1: I'm glad you asked that because actually the, the, the lab concept is is really intended to experiment with various different um, approaches. So it's the the uh, uh, the project actually has been extended, uh, but we hadn't intended for it to be. It was supposed to be a six-month experiment. Uh, we do not believe that Chicago Public Library's role is to be the uh, 3D printing hub for the city. In fact, we right. the private sector will do that much than us. Um, But we think it's an interesting place for people to be exposed to this technology that many believe um, is a game changer in so many different industries. Um, we think it's possible that on our public computers, since we have the, the, you know, the, the largest footprint of public access in the city, that we may want to be put on our basic offerings, some of these 3D um, software um, programs. But no, we actually don't want the lab to continue in that, that function. In fact, we're really, um, we've already started to do lab projects related to um, uh, data visualization and uh, big data to help people understand what's available and how to um, adapt and use those data. So we have a, a whole laundry list of lab projects um, and actually, this is this is actually taking a note from Franklin that um, you know he's noted with one of the early concepts of American public libraries, where you um, sort of take your private uh, libraries and make them available to a larger group through the subscription model. And um, and when he did that, actually, what many people don't know is that in addition to having all of those collections, he was also doing experiments. And so he was uh, experimenting with, with electricity and various different leading technologies of the day right there in the library. And we think that at least in Chicago, that that's, a, um, that's an interesting place for a library to be, is to expose people t- to these um, leading technologies, these, these new ways of, of learning, um, but, but doing it at, in, a, in, a, in an experimental way.
4: Yeah,
2: I think the, um, the libraries of the future, it, it's hard to talk about them sort of separately from how you talk about where, what places in the future are going to be like, uh, whether it be in cities or in rural areas or whatever, so that the, the library's institution, uh, schools as institutions, zoos as institutions, museums as institutions, they're all changing, right? And so I think there's going to be a lot of iteration uh, as um, as we move towards the future about what, you know, might the library any of these institutions <clears throat> be and what role they play uh, in the way that uh, residents and community members uh, uh, organize themselves or take advantage of uh, the kinds of services that institutions uh, provide. It was interesting, I was at a session yesterday um, who will determine the marketplace of the future, and there was a lot of joking about librarians, hmm. uh, w- uh, which was really interesting because uh, some of the panel members were talking about how sort of algorithm is the king or a queen right uh, Really, the only way to do, to get anything done right right and i 'm exaggerating a little bit right, <clears throat> is to really query through an algorithm, and librarians can 't be an algorithm right but that 's the beauty of it right. Uh, because the intersection of the a- analytics that come from algorithm and the humanness that comes from a person that's really going to make sense of that for you uh, is, I think, uh, um, the most important thing to-, to think about in terms of libraries of the future or any institution of the future. Hmm. Uh,
0: a few months ago, I had the opportunity to interview one of, one of your colleagues, uh, John Sabo, who's the head of the Los Angeles Public Library System. And uh, one of the programs that they're launching there is, um, is, a, is a high school. Uh, they're, they're, they're creating an accredited high school diploma program inside the library, um, which is something he had come from the Atlanta Fulton County Library System, where they had had a lot of success with help, with librarians helping GED students <clears throat> complete their, their GEDs. Um, and so he, at, in Los Angeles, he's taking that one step further. And actually turning it into a, a fully accredited high school where you get a real diploma, um, and, and so those are some of the kinds of, of programs that I've, I'm seeing libraries create. Where um, you know he was talking about how the the way he, that he was able to sell this is that basically they, in Atlanta they had to take on from maybe 100 GED completions per year to over 550, and the the argument there when you're in a, in a in a space where there's um, you know, a funding crunch, uh, being able to tell the county commissioners we've basically cr- given you a, an entire high school here. Five, over 550 graduates it amounts to an entire, entire high school. Uh, so those are some of the kinds of things that I'm hearing about from, from, uh, from library systems uh, where they're, they're, they are trying to innovate. Um, so, I guess I was just curious to hear you know any any other any other in, in really innovative programming that you guys are hearing about as well. Nothing
3: okay
1: <laughs> I'm curious what you think as a as the leader of a, of a high school I'm still about thinking about the high school thing yeah. I, you know
3: helping. Helping students finish their their diploma in the sense of a GED makes perfect sense for libraries. Uh-huh. Um, as somebody who runs a high school, there's a whole lot that goes into you know the education of kids from um, whatever age 13, well, or this 14. This is mostly for years. adult learners. No, I follow. Yeah. But but is it's you know so much goes into the care and obviously in my case it's a, a very expensive private high school and so forth. So it's more elaborate and this has got a very different mission. But um, that you know that's that's certainly pushing the edge of what libraries ought to do is actually run a high school. Certainly the completion part makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, I guess I, I like the models where libraries are connecting to forms of learning that are happening for kids so that um, the, um, there's a theory that I'm personal to of connected learning and the, um, it's something that's being used <coughs> greatly in the Chicago Public Library as an example in the media space where you've got kids have you know, a school and they have other places that they do their, their primary learning, but they connect very effectively into spaces that the library has that attracts them there. And noting that a lot of the learning kids are doing is informal, and it's in interstitial moments on these devices. And if librarians can be a part of that process, uh, I think that can save kids' lives, literally. Um, actually, running a high school start to finish, I'll have to look more into whether that, that makes all of much sense from my perspective. Well, I think
0: the idea, and, and maybe you'll agree more with this, is, yeah. is that the actual learning is taking place online. but the library is yep. there to help make those connections to the online learning experience. I
3: totally get that. And, you know, actually the idea of having hybrid spaces and learning spaces where you're connecting in real space to what's going on online, I think, is a great is a great model. I just think, that, in, at least when you think of what you're trying to accomplish in high school, particularly for kids of an age, it's so much about moral and, and the kind of connections mm-hmm. that kids are making to one another. Um, and it seems that if librarians want to take that on and, <coughs> and actually play that role, it could work. It's just probably not exactly what most librarians have trained themselves to do. And I would think it's actually an way trickier with adult learners of various ages than it is as compared to, uh, to kids, but maybe the point is I'm having the perfect be the enemy of the good in my head and that this is a great thing for a bunch of people, so go for it.
2: Yeah. I, have a, I have a sort of a, a question as well. Um, so John, you, know, you mentioned John Saban. One of the things that he's doing also in Los Angeles is working on uh, with community organizations and with the city on citizenship. Yes. Uh, uh, Services. Uh, And part of it is because of the need and the population that is in in Los Angeles. And part of it, I think, is um, the, the, as I understand it from other people, maybe not from John himself, but the need for libraries to find other ways of supporting themselves, right? Exactly. Uh, And so maybe some of the new services and some of the new models and the innovation has to do with, yes, there is uh, an increase in the use of libraries, but I don't know if there's... uh, 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 a parallel increase in the support the financial support uh, for libraries, and so libraries have to um, start looking at new models for revenue uh, and, um, not, and not just ultra-
0: revenue I would right. say but but quantifying mm, right. their impacts on the right. community right. Uh, that was one of the things that John and I talked about was that you know that those kinds of numbers that politicians really like numbers like that you know you when you can go and say here's here you know here's what I did and I, and it, and it equal this number of people that well, some we, we sitting helped. next
3: to one of the great success stories of this in the country and <laughs> Bannon who has turned the, the city of Chicago around in this way right you've found a way to really align what you're doing with the city's mission and and have a, a great story there
1: yeah I think that we actually worked with um, mission measurement, which I think is in the house, uh, to, to help us do that. We we spent some time looking at um, sort of the core mission of, of the library. And, and 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 while our mission hasn't changed, we've, we thought it was important to be using the library to make the city um, stronger. And I think that's really what libraries are, you know, public libraries are, are about, um, you know, fundamentally access and uh, helping people connect, um, you know, to, to perform democracy. But we're also about Um, making our cities smarter, more competitive, and hopefully sustainable. And that's really how we realigned the libraries to look at the three different areas that were most important to the city um, and and, and figure out how the library against our mission can help the city stronger. So we looked at learning, um, supporting uh, the economic ecosystem, as well as um, strengthening our neighborhood assets, um, our our neighborhoods, um, you know, in the city. You know, back to your question on what libraries are doing sort of in the experimental um, places. One of the things I think many people don't realize uh, is in this connected world how few people are actually connected. So we've got a you know, large portion of us. I'm sure everybody in this room has multiple devices that are connecting to the internet. You know, lots of opportunities to, you know, to email, to learn, to you know, to use all these great tools. But there is still a large portion of people in the U.S. that don't have it. And in Chicago, we have certain neighborhoods where, um, you know, 70% of the people have um, limited or no access to, um, the, you know, the, the leading knowledge of the day, and they, you know they can't apply for jobs. They can't. Um, you know, get benefits. And so the library has a really important role in that space. And so actually one of the things um, that we've, that, that we're experimenting with in Chicago is how we can begin to help people uh, bring the Internet home and um, and also be exposed to some of the, um, the, the free and low-cost programs that would allow them to sustain that activity. So we'll, we'll be launching later this year a program that allows you to check out uh, devices, so hotspots, plus uh, a laptop, so you can begin to take those things home. But in in that case, it's it's less about the technology and actually more about the support that we're providing to people to understand what the programs out there that exist to help them sustain it, how to help them, uh, you know, build the skills they need, um, Mm -hmm. and then to help them bring it home so they can experiment at home. This, oh, so we actually ran a story
0: about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both the Chicago Public Library and the New York Public Library are. I've just recently received grants from, I believe, it's the Knight Foundation, mm-hmm. to launch these Wi-Fi lending. It's the prestigious um,
3: News Challenge that they both won. That's yes,
0: exactly. Um, and I, I thought I was fascinated by this, um, and, and I'm glad to hear you say that the, the plan in Chicago is to to add. Too. It's not just here's your Wi-Fi hotspot mm-hmm. and, you know, go, take it home for however long. Yeah. How, how long will people be able to check those out for?
1: It's about, it's three weeks uh, and I think in New York they're, they're lending them for multiple months so yeah. they're sort of giving them the service. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, this is a pilot, this is an experiment, it's something for us to learn and, and, and you know, and, and hopefully adapt. Um, and we don't know if it'll be a, you know the, the right approach. What I do think is interesting about the hotspot lending program and actually many of the the things that um, that hit the press, which you, which you are, <laughs> is um, it's often sort of the shiny objects that are coming out on the other end. And I think in Chicago, <laughs> many of the things that we've we've, we've been um, acknowledged for doing are experiments. They're not um, we have, they're not services that we've committed to. They're not. Um, they're not uh, uh, you know, things that we necessarily want to do in the long term, but it's, a, it's a represent, representing sort of our research and development, which is a tiny amount of the, the effort of our organization. But it's interesting, and I actually think it's the case in, in, in the city, is that that buzz, it turns out, is, is important to elevating your brand um, while you're actually doing the, the, the more tested uh, work uh, at the community level, which we often don't get as much um, publicity for.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my big question about the long-term viability of lending out hotspots uh, for an average library, say a, a smaller library system in a smaller town, is, is whether that's really going to be affordable <clears throat> within the constraints of a, of yeah. a library budget in the long term.
1: Well, our hope in this particular case is that it can bring, you know, well, one of our, 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 our hopes is that as, as we start looking at E-rate reform, which is a, a program that allows schools and libraries to submit for significant reimbursements for uh, uh, technology, uh, that that this could be uh, something that would qualify as part of the E-rate reform, which we would then get a 90% discount, and it would be scalable.
0: Yeah.
3: And, Summer, so I think one of the assumptions, though, is that libraries would continue doing everything they've been doing, plus lend out hotspots. I think the point is there will have to be some of these trade-offs. Yeah. And one might say, reasonably, that having every place make the same physical collection of books in every relevant town or, you know, with relevant cities Next to one another, I don't know, Minneapolis and St. Paul, or whatever, they may have to purchase less, right, and maybe the value of giving somebody a hotspot is so much greater than having the marginal uh, you know works now that's a controversial thing to say it means yeah. libraries spend less from their collection budget on physical objects, which might not be good for the publishing industry, might have other kind of ripple effects. But I do think those are the kinds of trade-offs as we make this switch from a predominantly analog world to a predominantly Mm -hmm. digital world that we will have to do. Well, and that's
0: interesting, too, the idea that library systems would need to collaborate that are maybe geographically near each other, which isn't, you know, maybe sometimes work in the case of the Twin Cities, they have a pretty good relationship. But in other, you know, in other regional systems of governments, that might be pretty complicated.
1: So, you know, one of the things, um, I'm glad you brought that point up about the trade-offs in particular as we're moving into the digital, the digital realm is that um, our model for sharing knowledge um, is changing dramatically as a result of uh, the law. And I don't know if, if you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, for libraries, our ability to lend physical objects, so books versus lending um, digital materials. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually very expensive. And in some cases, that, that knowledge of that content in in some ways isn't even available. Um, and, and so we are having to make decisions and trade-offs about what we buy in print versus what we buy digital. Um, and as we increasingly move into digital, one of the big questions about the future of libraries is, will we have the ability to procure and then share the leading ideas of the day? Um, and, you know, the answer may be no.
3: I think the key distinction is in a, in a physical era, we have the first sale doctrine under the copyright law, so you can take a physical book that you purchase and you can do anything you want with it. You can resell it at a (coughs) secondhand bookstore, you can tear it up, you could put it on fire, you can (laughs) <laughs> lend it like a library or whatever, and in the digital era, there is no digital for sale doctrine. So there, it doesn't exist. So when a library takes things in, they're taking it in according to a contract, and where, that's where the publishers are saying you know, 26 lens or 52 lens or whatever they're suggesting. And if libraries become, instead of owners of materials, they're becoming renters or leasers of materials according to a set of contractual terms that don't include holding it forever and lending it out, <coughs> libraries obviously are in a less good position. I think that's, the, that's, a, that's a huge and big concern going forward.
0: How, how has technology changed the actual work of librarians? are, are they spending their time doing different things
2: <coughs> yeah you know, I, I don't know because'm I'm, I'm not in the the library world as such, but one of the things that um, I was thinking about as you were talking about the hotspot lending and and, and the the digital realm and, and maybe where librarians you know um, become more um, facilitators of network and learning and knowledge in a digital realm um, if you think about all of the people now who are going to be networked digitally digitally through their library cards right they're like you know that you've got a platform uh, within the library space that allows people to potentially network to each other and to create knowledge and share knowledge uh, and have that knowledge be curated across a library system um, very differently from what you've described in terms of you know the 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 issues that come with um, you know, books and digital uh, forms of literature or reading uh, that have to be curated. So if you create a platform uh, where library card holders uh, in the virtual space are coming together and saying, you know, there's some transportation issues in the city. Uh, that uh, really needs some solving or some other sort of government services or neighborhood services and you use the library as that platform, all of the people that have the library cards to come together and try to solve solution, the librarian can facilitate uh, the coming together of that conversation uh, the library itself can maybe be a link to uh, governments or other institutions as a way of that uh, curating that conversation and lending itself to a solution that might be a technology solution or might be an analog solution.
1: Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I would agree that the, I think one of the big changes in the role of a librarian is it's, we're moving away from being the experts in finding stuff, um, although there's um, certainly there's research librarians that are, um, you know, archivists and, and such. but but more facilitators. Uh, and I think that's an interesting role and an evolving role that's, um, that's important. Hmm.
0: What, about, what about curation? Is that, is that the job of the librarian more so than ever?
1: Curation uh, in a traditional sense, no. Mm. I don't think so. I think uh, curation in terms of curating um, program services um, that are relevant to their individual communities. Yes.
0: Brian, when you were in San Francisco you oversaw the design and construction of 24 new or, or, or renovated branch libraries when you were uh, head of the, of the branch of the neighborhood libraries in, in San Francisco. Um, what, what are some of the, the key design challenges of the, the modern neighborhood
1: library? Well, you know, one, I mean, one is flexibility. So uh, as part of that program we, we renovated, um, uh, Beautiful Carnegie era buildings, which are um, uh, historic, and uh, they're also a challenge to operate as the traditional, as a, as a library today. They're, they have these sort of small little rooms, and they're 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 not really laid out for the kind of flow that we would that we would want in a, in a library today. So one of the big things is just flexibility. And one of the things we we know about libraries is that um, as the environment changes, so will the spaces. And so the main thing that we were thinking about <clears throat> throughout that is how we design uh, for today's needs, but making sure that there was maximal flexibility. So there's a lot of things in our program that were around, like raised flooring and that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, in, in Chicago, as we're looking at uh, designing new libraries, um, we're increasingly looking at how, how we can design spaces that support um, a variety of different activities simultaneously. So for example, um, co-working is a big uh, um, thing that we're looking at right now is that many people who are using our libraries, particularly our, our, our central library and different libraries in, in the neighborhoods, are coming because they're, they, they have, they're, they're a single person who's running their own business and they're actually doing it out of the library. So mm. how might we create a space that supports that activity? Um, in, in addition to that, we have you know huge usage of young uh, families and children. Um, and so we're trying to figure out what's the best way to create spaces that support um, families and learning. And um, uh, our traditional uh, children's library was just sort of small furniture and small uh, books and small shelves. Um, and increasingly, we're looking at how we create a, an environment that really mimics what parents should be creating at home for their child in terms huh. of encouraging creative play um, and designing spaces with those in mind. And um, so number one, it's flexibility. Number two, it's, it's, it's staying current with the leading trends of how, um, you know, what we learn about how people learn and, and designing spaces along with it.
2: It's interesting. Just speaking to, to um, this last point, um, my daughter and my, and my grandkids—they um, go to the park uh, every morning. And when she was first started taking them, she used to hear the other mothers uh, saying, "See you at the library, right?" Um, and she was also very curious, as, you know, what you know, what's going on <coughs> at the library that everybody else is you know is going to. Uh, and her local library, they have the play space outside. Uh, and they have the play space inside, and they have, you know, all of these activities that are going on that are very family-oriented, and same thing, it's not about little chairs and little books and somebody reading just to a, a group. It's really a place where uh, it's an extension, I think, of the community that they have created, uh, you know, in the park, in the neighborhood, and so on, and it's really it's become a very vibrant place for her. Uh, to really sp- uh, spend time and learn about, you know, in many ways she's learning parenting, uh, she's learning how, they, the kids are learning how to uh, network with each other or play with each other and it's, it's just something that she had never thought of uh, in terms of uh, um, what the library could provide.
3: One tiny example of this is in St. Paul, uh, one of the Libraries has set up a teen uh, library space that's just off a basketball court, which I thought was a clever idea, and they're trying it out as an example of huh. see if they can pull, pull kids in through, I don't know, sweaty basketball game and come in and check out a book, <laughs> see if it works. Are the,
0: are, are the, are the physical spaces of libraries, do they, do they have different physical needs for to provide digital services in, in, in your experience, John?
3: Well, I, I was director of a library at, um, at a at at Harvard University, and it was a, a really big law library. It had this just most beautiful room you've ever seen. It was the size, size of a football field. My friend David Weinberger and I worked there. Um, and what I was so interested in about, I would walk through the library at different er- times of the day, and that library is packed. Every single seat for much of the time, particularly during exams, was covered in these long tables, and kids were arm by arm. Um, and what was so interesting to me, in addition to it being so vibrant and a place that kids wanted to come, and study was that I never once in four years of being a director there saw a kid do this. Right. So the idea was not that they were there to take a book off a shelf. They were there because they had a laptop like David's, and they had a cup of coffee in the like approved mug with the top on it, you know. And it was it was a social space for doing this contemplative thing called studying. And the you know were they there because the Wi-Fi was faster there than in their dorm or at home? I don't think particularly. Right. Then this was not an access issue. These are kids who have lots of ways to get access to the network. Um, were they there because? You know, there were portraits of dead white males in wigs that made them think of the law. I don't think that really was it. But there, there was something about coming to a common space. I think it was that there were human beings called librarians there, that if they were really in trouble, they could get, you know, access. and. They're having trouble, but they were all using, you know, uh, either the the big casebooks that they had been given and had highlighted, or they were using LexisNexis and these online services. So it's a long way of saying, you know, I, I think it is. I think the, the design challenge of uh, of spaces in a digital age for libraries is a really, really interesting one, and I think we should figure out where the digital and the physical kind of coalesce. Um, but I think it's actually, I think we might be overthinking it if we think, you know, it's all about where the access points are. I think, as Brian said, it, it's about collaborative spaces. So we we needed to create. More more rooms where, you know, kids could actually work together in quiet as well as, you know, in these open spaces. So I just think it may be be simpler than we're thinking it is um, when we're we're, uh, imagining the redesign of these spaces. Uh, Boston Public Library, as an example, is going through a huge renovation right now of the uh, historic Johnson Building. Um, And, you know, a lot of what they've been thinking about is they're putting the teens and the tweens um, uh, up on the second floor in their kind of own spaces. Uh, and thinking that that might actually, you, you can uh, make it attractive to them but have them a little bit out of the way of the um, uh, of others because they might make a little bit more noise there. I don't know, they're, they're interesting thoughts like that that actually don't have to do with the network but might actually make a big difference in terms of usage.
2: Yeah. I want to go back to the, the point you made earlier about libraries, community center, or not, and then what you just said. Uh, we work with a community center, a teen center uh, in uh, the East Bay, uh, um, Uh, Bay Area, San San Francisco. And it's interesting, you walk into the teen center and the first thing you see is the library, actually. And so it is the library within the teen center uh, and it allows them to be who they are, what they are, what they are doing and have access to uh, the, you know, the the books, the uh, videos, you know, all of the library services. Uh, that they would have if they went to the live, but it's actually there embedded in idea. the space yeah. that uh, they, they think of as, you know, their space. Uh, and so it's a wonderful thing. And, and you know, we asked, you know, and it's books, right, because they have surrounding it all the other sort of digital things that they, you know, they want to do. But the, they, they really wanted uh, to create a space where the, the young people that are coming in to have the books and talk about what they're reading and share what they're experiencing in relationship uh, to the library. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's maybe it's not just <clears throat> rebuilding or building uh, new libraries, but it's it's moving the library. You know, not like in a bookmobile, <laughs> but moving the library into the spaces where people already gather.
0: I want to make sure we um, get some time for uh, questions from the audience. So if you have questions for the panelists, please raise your hand and a microphone will be brought around to you right here.
5: Uh, my name is Fred Kent. I'm with Project for Public Spaces. We work, we work on libraries all over the world, or public spaces. And there's three quick examples. Uh, in uh, Winnipeg, there's a whole bunch of African cultures coming into that city, different black African cultures, and they go to the library. And what they began to realize is that they needed to do more than just go to the library. So they put a market, an African market outside the library, and that really started, it was because the library was there, they were able to do that. Another librarian in Richmond, British Columbia, said he had to move out of his library into a large space that was kind of like a, a uh, Walmart-type space with other cultural institutions. And he said, we really serve the community because they would come into the building, and then they would find different places to go to, but it wasn't just the library that they would go to. They might go to some cultural activity. And then in Perth, Australia, uh, the state librarian had a, has a very big building. She decided to take all the library functions off of the ground floor, create a town square in a larger cultural center, and, uh, and draw people in that way, but have various aspects of the library in that space, but other kinds of activity as well. And so uh, Canadian librarians are really progressive about being in, being in the communities. We're working on, on activating a Houston library and uh, the main library in Houston with an activation event that Southwest Airlines is sponsoring. So there's all these ways where the library can become part of a town square and maybe there's aspects of a community center in there, but there's so many other things that go on in the, in the town square that libraries could be an integral part of and a major resource for.
0: Fred, so was there, was there a, a question there?
5: Well, the question, the question is I think... You're talking about the library in a building, mostly, except for you. I don't know your name, ma'am, but the the future of libraries may be better to look at the building and its context within a community and how all of these activities may go on with the library as a center of that, Mm -hmm. so that's a question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that was what I was trying to argue with the, the basketball court, you know, putting it on that. I, I think there are lots of ways in which that's, you know, that's important. But then the architecture of the future of libraries may be very different than
0: it is in the past. I think there was a question right up here. Yeah, right here.
5: I read about the bond problems in Chicago, the financial problems in Chicago and Illinois, and yet I don't hear that resonating through your your commentary. Do you have a different way of being funded, or uh, am I missing something?
1: Well, I didn't necessarily want to get in all the finances of Chicago, but um, but I will. <laughs> uh, so you know, Chicago libraries, like any other, well, Chicago as a city has been struggling financially, um, and hopefully is coming out of it. Um, we at at Chicago Public we saw significant reductions uh, in 2009 and in 2011 uh, that resulted in uh, closures, or not closures, uh, reduction in hours. Um, we have been able to, to bring many of those hour ba- hours back, and part of the reason we've been able to do it was through restructuring and reorganizing, um, and also part of it was, um, to To help the mayor and help the city council see the important role that the library is playing in um, in in the city, the thing is about uh, Chicago Public Library, just to give you a sense i mean we 're it costs about one hundred million dollars to run the library and that sounds like a big number um, depending on the community that you 're in. but when you look at what it costs to run the Chicago public schools, six billion dollars we 're a tiny piece of of a, of, a, of a very expensive, large sprawling city, and it turns out the um, at least in the view of of, of city council and our mayor, and in, in my view, is is the, in, that that tiny investment um, in in libraries as these um, anchors community you know in, in neighborhoods as well as uh, playing a really important role in the after-school and out-of-school-time learning um, has been uh, an effective argument for um, keeping funding in place. Um, but doesn't mean that we haven't experienced um, the economic downturn. I mean, one of the other challenges that we have uh, on content is that um, our collections budget in Chicago is um, uh, a little less than what we had in uh, San Francisco, and we're three times the size. So <clears throat> we definitely have some financial challenges, and uh, depending on what happens with pension reform in Chicago, uh, they may be even deeper.
3: I think the key, in a way, though, is that you're a cheap date, Brian. In a, in a, <laughs> the, 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 the marginal cost of what really makes a difference in the library mm-hmm. isn't such a big deal in, in the school system, right? Or, right. Or whatever. I mean, it's the 820. It. Right. Our high school yeah. costs $100 million to run, and you run the entire city of you know, Chicago's public library system, right, that's, there's much more margin and leverage in giving you another six million dollars.
0: So, I have a question right here.
4: I just came from the uh, Rem Koolhaas Library in Seattle, and one of the biggest problems they have there is, and they see it as a problem, is the homelessness. They all gather Within the library, and they are in the process right now of looking for uh, answers to what do we do with this because it's pervasive within all six floors. So, one of the ideas they have, and I'd like to know if any of you have any new and innovative ideas, one of the ideas they have is to relegate a space with showers and bathrooms and Washers and dryers and so forth, within the library. What do you think about that? And do you have any new and updated ideas on that issue?
1: So you know, I, my thoughts on that it, um, sort of similar to the high school um, question. I, I'm not totally sure that it's the role of the library to serve also as a as a, a shelter um, for <clears throat> homeless. I do think it's a really important question that that libraries get, uh, at least the ones that I've worked in. Uh, when you're in an urban Setting um, homelessness as part of the urban challenge, as is violence and so many other things, I, I do think it's important that we that we see libraries as public spaces that are open to all regardless of who they are or their background and um, and that we don't start this sort of process of of segregating and saying, well you, you know we 're going to create rules to highly discourage you from coming in and you know more encourage you um, but you know one of the things I saw in San Francisco that <clears throat> we experimented with that was actually quite successful was actually bringing in um, uh, uh, people that would work with um, homeless to identify services outside the library that existed to support them. And so we, ha- we brought in social workers. Um, and That was their job. And so rather than uh, trying to create um, a shelter within the library um, or, you know, segregate, you know, various different populations and different pieces of the place of the library, it was a more connecting them to the services that already exist in the city. I think that's probably, a, um, probably the approach that I would go towards. Um, but, you know, every city looks at that in a different way.
0: There's a question back here. Can you get a microphone there?
5: Good
2: morning. Brian, as you well know, there's a great deal of discussion and debate about where the Obama Library should go. Chicago. I'm re- of course. <laughs> of course. I'm really, I'm really just pointing to where in Chicago the Obama Library should go. Oh, well, we don't know that. Exactly. <laughs> um, but with that in mind, and just having been in Grand Rapids and visited the Ford um, Presidential Library, What do you guys think in general about how we can make these presidential libraries less a monument to an individual and more a way of engaging the populace around civic issues, citizenship, access, et cetera? What recommendations would you make to that committee about how the library should play out?
1: That's a great question. Well, I mean, I think presidential libraries, um, they're they're called libraries, and I think in some instances they, they perform as libraries. But I'm really excited by the prospect of um, wherever the Obama Library ends up, whether it's Chicago or somewhere else, that it really would um, aspire to, to something um, like what you just suggested, that it would be a place to learn about democracy, to engage in democracy, to see it in action. Um, I think it would be great if that was happening in, a, in an urban space um, that um, that you could actually see it um, live, as opposed to sort of off in some uh, remote place. Um, we've actually been in discussions with, with with all three of the institutions that are <laughs> wanting to, to bring the Obama Library to Chicago about what role the public library might play in supporting those activities. And I think um, once the decision is made about where it goes, um, whether Chicago or somewhere else and if it's in Chicago, that we hope to have um, a, a role in helping um, on that more public side of it. I, I agree it's a really important part um, of uh, of, well, Obama's legacy, but also I think is an important part of the presidential libraries and their mission.
2: I, I think here's an opportunity to think about, again, it's, uh, you know, um, w- when it would get um, started in terms of its, you know, sort of building and, and, and design. You know, it could be more of a digital, uh, virtual library, presidential library. I mean, you think about, you know, um, you know uh, the, the uses of technology that the Obama administration has brought into you know very stark relief uh, and uh, its ability hopefully to sort of project into the future and so uh, being a virtual library in addition to having some you know physical presence and allowing uh, for that discussion around democracy or the um, participation in democracy be more than just in one place, one city but really sort of permeating across uh, the U.S. because it is the President of the United States and not just Honolulu or Chicago or wherever, uh, you know, they might decide uh, to locate it.
3: I would argue strongly for this blended approach, particularly with this president, in the sense yeah. that I think his election initially was one of the places, the times, really in our history, where somebody combined beautifully digital organizing with on-the-street, you know, door-knocking, right? In some respects, this hybrid thing is, is a big part of his legacy. I also have not talked about my pet project or our many of our pet projects, which is the Digital Public Library of America. This is an effort to create a national digital library. It has happened during Obama's presidency. Actually, two of the huge drivers of this have been the National Archives as well as the Smithsonian, which are big, you know, obviously federal players. The National Archives oversees the presidential libraries, and David Ferriero, who is the archivist of the United States, has been really the number one champion of building this national digital library, and I actually could imagine a really cool statement that says, you know, one of the things that happened during the president's uh, tenure was to create this national platform for libraries mm-hmm. digitally mm-hmm. and also really connect it to a space in his hometown of Chicago. And I, I think you could do something really incredibly <laughs> cool that speaks to the future of libraries as platforms and as, um, as places in, in a meaningful way. I think it's, it's like tailor-built for that.
0: It's got to be Chicago. Right? Got to be Chicago. Yeah. But, but got to have a digital. I think we uh, have time for one last it. question. How about right here?
4: In these uh, times with still tight budgets and tough decisions about what content to buy and in what format. I'm wondering how <clears throat> patron-driven acquisition programs and other data that libraries now have is being used to tailor the acquisition programs to what extent? And how is that information being used to push back to publishers about what to publish and how to price it and how to make it available?
1: Yeah, so there's two. So I'll I'll start with that one. Uh, so patron-driven acquisitions for those of you who are not librarians in the room, I suspect you. you no, you're not <laughs> a publisher. <laughs> is um, is it's it's a way basically for us to to buy when a, when a when a patron asks for it as opposed to. Um, Thinking that there'll be demand and then doing a bunch of mass purchasing, so definitely the patron-driven dis- dif- um, patron d- acquisition, floating collections, a variety of ways that we're looking at how we can more efficiently use that resource. I actually think that's one of the silver linings of a you know of a, of a reduced budget is that it makes you become much more creative about the resources that you have. Um, the question around. Publishers is um, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough question. I mean, you know, each library on their own doesn't have the um, negotiating power that a library as a collective has but the libraries as collectives all have various different views. And there's you know, some libraries, you know, I'm not going to name them, that um, will go off and work with publishers separately and negotiate something for their own city, but it doesn't extend um, to all cities. Um, so I, I think it's something. It's a great challenge to libraries um, to be more collaborative in how we work with publishers. And at the end of the day, we, you know, we want to make the, the information available. We also want publishers to be successful um, in their business model. So um, I think there's a way to do both. Um, we just haven't gotten there yet
3: we haven't talked that much about libraries' roles as creating the long-term preservation of knowledge and We've talked mostly about access, which is natural mm-hmm. since we're talking about public libraries. But I think we need to keep both in mind, which is the role of providing access and the role of, of preservation. And actually, this is this question, I think, really drives at it, which is if all you did as libraries were to uh, provide exactly what everybody thinks they want at that moment and didn't think about this sort of um, keeper of knowledge role and maybe this idea of serendipity, that you would present mm-hmm. somebody a book they didn't think they knew they wanted and they happened to see it on a shelf and they were to take it. So I, I just think as we go forward, I think, patron-driven. An acquisition is a really interesting idea and a good one in, in some respects. I think libraries and publishers need to make common cause to get through this transitional period and I actually think there is a collective action you know issue there that, that could be interesting. But at the same time, I think we have to just recall that you know many publishers go out of business and you know as a library director, I was shocked by three or four times in four years, Publishers came to me and said, you have copies of things that we own the rights to, but we don't literally have them. We need copies of them back so we can make digital copies. Three or four times, major publishers, you know, who had eventually acquired <laughs> them. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the digital library, or, or the Library of Alexandria doesn't exist, right? The Library of Pergamon doesn't exist anymore. The grand libraries of the world, you know, they get you know, destroyed somehow. We actually need a system that ensures that in this digital era, we're actually preserving all this knowledge mm-hmm. as well as making it available.
2: This is uh, where you, you go a little bit down that, that slippery slope I mentioned about the marketplace of the future uh, being driven by the analytics of consumers, uh, uh, the, the documentation of consumers' tastes, uh, and, and such deciding what products mm-hmm. get brought to the, the market. Uh, and there is a need for sort of a human element you know, in all of that so that it doesn't just become about algorithm.
0: All right, well, I want to thank everyone for joining us and um, have a great day. Thank you guys.